0: Greg Locke, who leads Global Vision Bible Church, said in a recent sermon that a demon revealed to him the identity of six witches in his church during an exorcism session.
1: Wait, 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 Nick. So let me get this straight. There was a demon that ratted out on some other demons? That's right. (sighs) What's the world coming to? You can't even trust a demon these days. No honor among the demons, I guess, huh?
0: This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, Preaching Minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California.
1: I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota.
0: On this episode of Swordplay, where we offer double-edged perspective on Scripture, the book of Proverbs.
1: That's right. The Book of Proverbs is an installment in our series on Solomon. So we're looking at all kinds of Solomonic works, and we did Song of Solomon. Now we're doing Proverbs. Next time, we'll do Ecclesiastes. But how are we going to cover all of Proverbs in one episode? Well, we're not. We're just going to do the (laughs) introduction. It's way too much to cover for the whole Book of Proverbs. So we'll do a deep dive into Proverbs at another time where we can actually dig into some of those nuggets of wisdom. But for today, introduction only, but don't be too sad. There are some pretty interesting things in the introduction material. So, as always, we like to start with who wrote the book we're talking about. So, Nick, talk to us about the author who wrote Proverbs.
0: Yeah, the primary writer of the book of Proverbs is Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, his name is mentioned a few times, 1 verse 1, 10 verse 1, 25 verse 1. Most of the book is comprised of Proverbs from Solomon, to be expected. Uh, beginning 1 verse 1 and going all the way to 22 verse 16, that's all uh, Solomon. And then chapters 25 to 29, uh, more from Solomon there. Those, all those, uh, those those two major sections are from the same author. And then uh, 22, verse 17 to 24, verse 34, are the words of the wise, or they're also called the sayings of the wise. There's no uh, definite name that's attached to them. When you come to chapter 30, Agar, son of Jaca, is the author. And then chapter 31, King Lemuel, or actually more precisely, his mother, she is the source of that material uh, there. So, Primarily Solomon, but, you know, like they sing, he got by with a little help from his friends, right? He had some help from his friends, uh, two of whom are named, the rest are anonymous. So that's a bit of what I see here concerning the author of Proverbs. You want to toss anything in there, Alex?
1: Nope, that sounds good to me. Now, as always, if we talk about the author, we also got to talk about when the author wrote what he wrote, as we have it today. So when was Proverbs written, Nick? Talk about the date
0: well, since most of the book is traced back to Solomon, uh, that would put our earliest date for this sometime in the 10th century BC when uh, Solomon is reigning. But again, uh, he's certainly responsible for the inception of the book. He's responsible for the majority of the text. However, it is during the reign of Hezekiah that the book is copied and apparently supplemented with further sagacious sayings from wise men. You get this from chapter 22 and verse 1, that the book uh, it was copied in Hezekiah's day. And so the start date, 10th century B.C., and then the conclusion date for me seems to have been sometime in the late 8th or the early 7th century B.C., when uh, the book is copied and the compilation is complete. And so in this way, Proverbs is not unlike the book of Psalms. That, of course, is a book of our Bible, which was compiled over a period of time by several writers. It began with Moses back in Psalm 90 and uh, perhaps Psalm 91 as well. Of course, it includes King David. He writes the lion's share of the book, and then it culminates with Mm-hmm. exilic or perhaps even post-exilic psalms so you're you're covering there a, a substantial range several centuries uh for the book of psalms proverbs similar to that though the the timeline isn't as large uh as it is in the book of Pro Prover- uh, book of psalms i should say so that's what i see about the uh the the date for the book of proverbs what do you think alex
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I would also like to note that just like the Psalms, the collection of Proverbs had an editing hand over time. In other words, somebody arranged the Proverbs, just like somebody arranged the Psalms. Uh, They put them in a certain order for certain theological or applicational reasons. Uh, This doesn't mean that the content was necessarily tampered with, but simply that the sections were copied and pasted into a specific arrangement. So... When we ask uh, when was Proverbs written, why was Proverbs written, we should also keep in mind when were the Proverbs editorially arranged and why were the Proverbs editorially arranged in its current form because there are a few different forms of the book of Proverbs just like there were a few different forms of the Psalms when you compare uh things like the Septuagint with the Dead Sea Scrolls with the Masoretic text uh later on and so the final form of the arrangement doesn't necessarily take place until much later but i agree with that the content was written for proverbs as you said uh 10th to 7th century BC and then collected gathered edited into a specific arrangement so we are on to the purpose then Why was Proverbs written?
0: So there are two uh, texts that are the primary texts for establishing why Proverbs was written. Uh, You get uh, purpose statements, uh, seemingly, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and then chapter 22, verses 17 through 21. And from these texts, one could distill seven purposes uh, for this book. Uh, in 1 verses 2 and 3, the text says, "...to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity." So first, uh, right off the bat, you, the, the first purpose is to know, to understand, to receive these seven attributes, namely wisdom, instruction, words of insight, wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity." And just briefly walking through those wisdom, that, of course, that's a clear echo back to what Solomon prays for uh, in 1 Kings 3, verse 9. It's a a mind of understanding. It is uh, the intent of uh, distinguishing good from evil, uh, the ability to do that. Uh, There's an implication that there is a set standard to adhere to, like the statutes that were given by God that are to be maintained. Uh, You can see Deuteronomy 4, 6 for an example of that. So there is a standard and you're supposed to stick closely to it. Instruction. This could be also understood as self-control or discipline. It is the thing by which people are trained, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out in their commentary. Words of insight. This would be understanding. It would be discernment, especially concerning matters of God. Uh, Wise dealing. Another translation, New American Standard, says wise behavior. That's good too. This is... Discreet counsel, it it involves thoughtfulness, righteousness, That is, or the King James says justice. This is a a divine attribute. It is acting according to uh, the standard. Uh, Justice is also translated as judgment in the King James. It is uh, the act of deciding legal dispute. Uh, So you have kind of a courtroom aspect to this. And then equity. This is conforming to a standard, kind of like a, a river conforming to terrain. All of this has uh, implications for how an individual is to live in society. Uh, so social implications uh, abound with all of these. Uh, then next in uh, the first part of verse 4 in chapter 1, to give prudence to the simple is another purpose uh, for why the book was was written, uh, to promote prudence in the simple. Now, we need to ask, who are the simple? Because they show up again and again in Proverbs. These are the naive. They are the untaught. They are easily led to do good or evil. Uh, I think of Pinocchio, right? How he is easily swayed to go one way or another based on the company he keeps. And this is ultimately rooted in inexperience in life. They just haven't lived long enough for life to teach them the lessons that they need, The simple person is gullible, they are easily influenced, so they need prudence. Well, what is prudence? That uh, could be understood as shrewdness. It's the same word that's used of the serpent in Eden. So there is such a thing as bad prudence or bad shrewdness, which promotes trickery and deception. Here, it would be the ability to uh, recognize the bad situation and escape from the wiles of others, Uh, or especially in Proverbs To flee from folly, and we'll talk about folly more in a few minutes. A third purpose in the second part of verse 4 there, uh, to give knowledge and discretion to the youth. Uh, So this has to do with focusing on moral qualities uh, and the application of that morality. It has to do with the ability to make proper decisions between right and wrong, choosing the right over the wrong. And so uh, in parallel there with the simple, the youth would be those inexperienced ones. Verse 5 of chapter 1, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. So there's uh, a purpose here to increase intellect and to gain guidance from the wise, to apprehend and assimilate information into one's life, and then even to communicate that to others, verbally instruct them in the way that they're to go. And the wise are going to value all of this. As we come to chapter 22 and verse uh, 21, to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer to those who sent you. So a fifth purpose, to know truth and to give a true answer. And it sounds kind of like apologetics, right? It's, uh, what uh, Peter says over in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, to always be prepared to give an answer for those who ask concerning the hope within you. So, maybe a, a bit of an, an apologetic purpose there. Uh, 22, verse 18 talks about how uh, it will, if you incline your ear to hear the words of the wise, it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips. And so, uh, a pleasant life, a, a good life of praise will be the product of this. Uh, and so, you know, you, you, when you follow the wisdom, that's uh, given in this book you've got nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, how many young people need need to hear that message that uh, uh concerning the the wisdom in these books uh, in, in in these in in these chapters in this book? Uh, yeah, nothing to be ashamed of when you live a wise life, even though the world may mock you for it, and the world often does and then uh, verse nineteen that your trust may be in Yahweh, I have made them known to you today, even to you. That's, this is uh, what cumulative. It culminates here with trusting in the Lord. That is a primary purpose of this book, to put your entire confidence in God and then uh, that producing obedience in your life. Uh, that's, uh, again, a key purpose of this book. So that's the list that I've distilled from these uh, two texts in Proverbs, which seem to be purpose statements. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Why was Proverbs written? Hey, you mentioned
1: Pinocchio, right? Yeah. Remember when he's kidnapped and sent to a secret island? <laughs> uh, vaguely. It's like a cautionary tale on human trafficking, like, like tucked in within the, the, the story there. Crazy. Right. It's crazy. It's uh, crazy. Anyway, yeah, Proverbs. That's what we're talking about. Okay, <laughs> so to ask... <laughs> To ask why Proverbs was written, I think first requires a simple but foundational question. Uh, What is a proverb? Now, I found this quote from the Dictionary of the Old Testament to be insightful. It's an uh, article written by Hildebrandt, but he's quoting another guy named Hanuk. He says, "...the human urge to classify, generalize, and codify experience, filtered through a culture's ideals and values..." helps to explain the universality of the proverb. One might say that proverbs are an encoding compression schema of the mind, in quote. Wow. Man, that wins my vote for best quote of the day. I love that. That's good. An encoding compression schema of the mind. Now, while there are many stated purposes of proverbs within the biblical collection, it is helpful, I think, to see the need for and use of proverbial sayings across time and space. Pretty universal, that's that universality that Hanuk was talking about. Uh, Do we have proverbs today? Absolutely, you know what we call them? We call them memes. Memes are proverbs. They're not all good, but (laughs) nonetheless, that's what they are, memes are proverbs. So in the biblical text of proverbs, we have divinely approved memes for persuading one to lean into a more biblical worldview. So the wisdom found in the book of Proverbs may have many purposes, as you mentioned. You put those seven in there. However, Proverbs also makes clear, as the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary points out, that, quote, "...piety is the fundamental ingredient to all knowledge." So as the Proverbs help one to lean into a more biblical worldview, it does so by first instilling the importance of having fear or that reverence of God. You get that in chapter 1, verse 7. Fear leads to wisdom and knowledge, which then unlocks all of the goodies that you mentioned. And yet a good list. But as a disclaimer, since the Proverbs are these highly compressed statements, biblical interpretation and application must be taken with great care as we uncompress them for today. In other words, a proverb won't interpret itself and tell you how to apply it to a modern context in specific detail, and this is due to its compressive nature. Therefore, we simply filter the proverbs for their value in deriving biblical principles. As Hildebrandt says in a Dictionary of the Old Testament again, Quote, Proverbs are not meant to be dogmatized Into universal propositional truths This was one of the mistakes Made by Job's friends In the book of Job end quote. So that's my thought on, on Proverbs What is a proverb? What's the purpose of the Proverbs? Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that I think at the end of the introduction here But now we want to look at The structure of the book of Proverbs How is the material in the book of Proverbs Arranged, Nick? Talk to us about that for a minute
0: Yeah, chapters 1 through 9 seem to form a a single unit. I think it has the strongest case for a a solid textual flow. And what you see there is the picture of a father passing along wisdom to his sons. And and it's interesting just the way this kind of comes across, because sometimes it's a singular son, and sometimes it's a plural sons. And so uh, Solomon's son, or his sons, they seem to be the primary recipients of this book. 1 verse 8, verse 10, verse 15, 2 verse 1, 3 verse 1, verse 11, verse 21, 4 verse 1, there it's in the plural, verse 10, verse 20, 5 verse 1, verse 7 in the plural, 6 verse 1, verse 3, verse 20, 7, one, uh, seven verse 1, and also verse 24 where it's in the plural, And also verse 32, where it's in the plural. And this pattern actually continues throughout the book. You you get an allusion to it in 10 verse 1, 23 verse 15, verse 19, another allusion in verse 22, verse 26, 24 verse 13, verse 21, 27 verse 11, 31 verse 2, though it's used there for Lemuel by his mother. So for all intents and purposes, this is a letter from a father to his son or his sons, Uh, And you see that especially in that first major unit there in chapters 1 through 9. And then you get to chapters 10 through uh, chapter 10 uh, all the way to chapter 22, verse 16. This is the next major section comprising the Proverbs of Solomon. And here is found those short pithy moral maxims, those wise words, those sagacious sayings that most people, I think, are familiar with. And uh, most of the verses that folks memorize probably come from uh, this section here, chapter uh, chapters 10 through 22, verse 16. Then when you get to 22, 17 to chapter 24, verse 34, this is the next major section, and this is the, those sayings of <clears throat> the wise, the uh, or, or the words of the wise. Those wise men, they're anonymous to us, uh, but uh, perhaps would have been known to the original audience. But uh, that's the, the next major section there, a couple chapters devoted to those sayings of the words of the wise. Then you come back to the... Uh, The the Proverbs of Solomon in chapters 25 to 29, another section uh, composed of those uh, proverbs that are collected and copied during the reign of King Hezekiah. Uh, 25 verse 1 tells us that. And it's during the early part of the reign of Hezekiah, we'll remember from our Bible history, that he led a reform in Judah. And that included restoring the temple. It included renewing worship exercises uh, in the temple, and it uh, included, most notably, the celebration of the Passover. And you can read all about this in Second Chronicles chapters 29 and 30. So off-screen for the book of Proverbs, you have this reform that took place, and apparently that was the time when the finalization of the book of Proverbs took place. We come to chapter 30. This is the Record of the words of Agar. he's another wise man who, uh, again, depending on who you read, there are some who say he may have been a non-Israelite since he uses, or since the phrase the oracle is used in 30 verse 1, could also be translated, uh, that term, the oracle could also be translated as the uh, Massaite, or as my ESV footnote reads, the man from Massa. So he could have been a non-Israelite if you follow that reading. And then chapter 31, this uh, chapter concludes the book with the words of King Lemuel. He is communicating instruction that he had received from his mother. And again, if you take uh, the the phrase there, an oracle, as the Massaite, then we find that Lemuel was king over Massa. Uh, Most of his wisdom is focused on the ideal or excellent wife or excellent woman. Uh, Again, most uh, women are probably familiar with this. It's used for uh, the theme of a lot of ladies' days and things like that. Um, Another alternate understanding is that Lemuel is actually a pseudonym, another name for Solomon. Lemuel, the name, means uh, toward God. And Solomon, uh, his other name is Jedidiah, beloved of Yahweh. Uh, Of course, if that's the case, that would mean his mother was Bathsheba. So this could be wisdom from Bathsheba. It's a stretch, but it's a potentiality. I just mentioned it because you may run across it in your own independent study. There's a textual variant, which is uh, interesting. The text of the Septuagint does not include... Chapter thirty, verse one, all the way to thirty-one, verse nine, in the location where it's typically found in our English versions. Uh, it uh, the the text of the Septuagint goes from twenty-nine, twenty-seven, straight to thirty-one, verse ten, and the the discussion about the excellent wife passage. Uh, although it continues the versification as though it were the remainder of chapter 29. So that's actually verses 28 through 49 of chapter 29 in the Septuagint. Very interesting um, little textual variant there that Alex is going to uh, unpack for us a bit more as he talks about the structure of Proverbs and how it's arranged.
1: Yeah, so just to be clear, the the Septuagint's not missing that section of uh, chapter 30 verse 1 through 9. It's just located in a different spot, right? So the editorial hand of the Septuagint places that section in chapter 24 verses 24 through 32. Although as usual when you're looking at the wording between Septuagint and Masoretic text, There is a little bit of a difference in the wording because the Septuagint copies, they descend from a line of Hebrew texts that are different from the line of Hebrew texts that came to be the Masoretic text. There are these different lines of Hebrew texts. They didn't all come from the same line. And uh, there's actually, there are a few verses in the Septuagint of Proverbs that are not in the Masoretic text at all, but the, you know, I'll put quotes, extra content really doesn't contain anything that isn't already stated in a similar fashion in another passage. Uh, In the same way, though, there are a few verses in the Masoretic text that are not in the Septuagint, but I looked at the differences. They seem pretty negligible as far as I can tell. So both the Septuagint, then, and the Masoretic text, they are important texts to consider when studying the book of Proverbs. Well, and from my view, any Old Testament book for that matter, right? Now, this brings up an interesting point. While the content of Proverbs should be viewed as divinely inspired, is it incumbent upon us to always view the editorial arrangement as divinely inspired? Or, could multiple editorial arrangements be considered divinely inspired if they meet the divinely intended purposes of the arrangement? For example... The Gospels, their particular arrangements of similar material are all divinely inspired. Mark has his arrangement. Luke has his arrangement. Matthew has his arrangement. They're not all the same arrangement because each arrangement fits the divinely intended purposes of each book. And so could it be the same thing where we have different arrangements of the Psalms, different arrangement of the Proverbs, different arrangement of the order of books, in the old testament uh, could those arrangements all be divinely inspired to serve the purposes for which they were arranged and i would lean towards sure why not you know it, i don't see what, what that would hurt to 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 see it that way cuz you certainly had groups and communities of people who would adhere to one arrangement over the other because of the theological insight it gave them in the way it was arranged Another interesting note about the structure of proverbs is that within these six or seven larger sections that you mentioned, uh, there are other structural elements to keep an eye out for. So, Hildebrandt in the Dictionary of the Old Testament he lists three types of these uh, substructures. I'll call them. So first, there are pairs. Uh, Hildebrandt he counts over sixty of these pairs. That's uh, you know P A. I-R-S, not the fruit. So <laughs> this means that while much of Proverbs chapter 10, verse, uh, chapter 10 through 29 seems random, within those chapters are verses that go together intentionally. So one verse following the other, and then that's a pair, and then it's a different topic happens right after that. You can see these pairs of uh, Proverbs arranged together to enhance its teaching. So there are examples of that, and when Nick and I go into a deep dive of the actual proverbial sayings, we'll point that out. The second type of substructure is called the acrostic, and really you just see this in chapter thirty-one. The uh, uh, woman of of what's it called? The woman of praise, um, and it's recognizable really only in the original language, since an acrostic involves each line starting with the next letter of the alphabet. So in this case, it'd be the Hebrew alphabet, if we're looking at the Hebrew text. The third type of substructure are the what's called clusters. So you have pairs, you have acrostic, and you have clusters. So clusters are where one can find a group of verses united together by either an identical phrase at the beginning verse and end verse, like in chapter ten, verse six, and verse eleven. Verse six and eleven have an identical phrase in it, so that kind of add acts as a as a bookend to say this is a cluster of verses; these go together. Um, or a cluster can be formed by a chiasm, or I like to say a chiasm. Where verse ideas repeat themselves in reverse order. So you'd have, you know, let's say verse one, two, three, four, five, six. Let's say you had a cluster of six verses, and so you'd have uh, verse one would be idea A, verse two would be idea B, verse three would be idea idea C, and then you'd reverse it. So verse four would be idea C again, then verse five idea idea B again, and then verse six idea. A again so chiasms are cool to like see you know after the fact but nobody really reads in chiasms so it's not like you're um, needing to to read it that way it's just sort of like an after-the-fact analysis saying that you know what maybe it's not as random as it first appears maybe there are some forms of structure within the randomness of chapters 10 through 29 And here are the three types of structures that have been identified, at least for sure, within that randomness. So that's the structure of the book of Proverbs. Now we are going to end our introduction with a um, nice little a uh, bit of information on what we see as the major themes in Proverbs. And so, Nick, I know you have three themes here. I just have one theme that I wanted to talk about, but obviously there are many themes in the book of Proverbs. What stood out to you, Nick?
0: Yeah, and uh, before we get to that, I did want to just circle back to um, the location uh, for those who may be following along in their Septuagint of those verses. uh in chapters, uh, chapter 30, verse 1, all the way to 31, verse 9. You can actually find that in, uh, as Alex said, chapter 24. Uh, and verses 24 through 77 of that chapter in the Septuagint uh, contains not only all those verses, uh, 30, verse 1, all the way to 31, verse 9 in our English, but also incorporates kind of in sandwich form what for us in our English is twenty-four verses twenty-three through thirty-four. So the way it breaks down roughly is what is uh, Proverbs thirty verses one through fourteen in our English is twenty-four verse twenty-four through thirty-seven. It's actually this is the latter part of verse twenty-four there to the verse thirty-seven, and then you pick up the material of twenty-four. Verses twenty-three to thirty-four in our English that shows up in twenty-four, verse thirty-eight through forty-nine, and then it circles back to conclude the material of in our English thirty, verse fifteen to thirty-one, verse nine, in twenty-four, verse fifty through seventy-seven in the Septuagint, and as Alex said, there are uh, slight variations there of uh, the translation in the from the Hebrew into the Greek. Um, but it's all there. Very interesting. Very interesting, that uh, arrangement bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. First major... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. First major theme. God. All right. (laughs) Uh, God is, of course, the the first primary major theme of all the books of the Bible. Um, Few texts in Proverbs so succinctly summarize the wise man's thinking about God while also being relatively well-known to most folks as the text we find in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Uh, so circle back here to trust, right? Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. To trust is to wholly and entirely rely upon the promises and providence of God. Now We we need this because of the complexity of life, because of the difficulty of life, because we don't know what the future holds. We need God's promises, and we need his providence. We need a a big, faithful God who is overseeing and governing the affairs of life, uh, even in control of our lives as we submit ourselves to him. He not only holds our hand— But his hand also holds the future as well. What is necessary then to trust in Yahweh? What's necessary? Well, we need to surrender ourselves. That's the idea there of do not lean on your own understanding. And we also need a wholehearted faith. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, the text says. So God guides and we must follow. And then to acknowledge God. In all your ways. To acknowledge is to, is to know. It's to, to recognize God. It's to recognize His overarching guidance and His, his providence in our lives. It is an acknowledgement of God's power, of God's wisdom. Uh, it acknowledges His goodness and His righteousness over all our ways, be it in this life or the next, be it in the spiritual or the secular realm, be it in public or private. In all your ways, we are to recognize God and acknowledge uh, him in these various ways. That's the first major theme I see. God, uh, did you want to toss in any comments here, Alex? Nope, sounds good. Okay, going on. (laughs) (laughs) Next major theme related to uh, God, Yahweh God, is fear of Yahweh. And this is something that uh, Alex mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, upwards to 15 times in this book, Solomon exhorts his son, he exhorts even us today, to fear Yahweh. Humans have a duty to God, to fear him. I like what Adam Clark says about this. He says, every intelligent being owes this to his creator. That is fear. But what do we mean by fear? and uh, in, in particular, <clears throat> fear of Yahweh. My working definition for this is that reverential attitude of awe and respect of the one true creator God. And it finds expression in reverential submission to his will in all areas of life. So it begins in the mind, attitudinal, but then it finds outward expression in our behavior and in our actions. Proverbs begins by affirming that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of Yahweh. 1 verse 7. Fear of Yahweh, also the beginning of wisdom, we're told in 9, verse 10. So the wisest thing a person can do is fear Yahweh. Yet it is this reverential attitude toward God, which is a prerequisite for knowledge and wisdom. If one reveres God, they're supposed to also hate evil. 8, verse 13 says, fear of Yahweh is hatred of evil. Of course, this is where it gets tricky. And again, this circles back to something Alex mentioned earlier about how do we how do we uncompress uh, these very tightly packed Proverbs, the art and discipline of the interpretation of these particular verses of Scripture. Fear of Yahweh, we are told, prolongs life and it leads to life. We're told this in 10 verse 27, also 19 verse 23. So if a person will fear Yahweh, then... They'll have long life. And if they don't fear Yahweh, they'll have a short life. They won't have a long life. Well, someone, of course, might object, rightly so. We we know that righteous people succumb to disease and to illness. They die in unexpected tragedies or they're killed by the wicked. And not only our experience, but also scriptures testify that the righteous have their lives cut short as martyrs, like James in the book of Acts chapter 12 and verse 2. So, how do we reconcile these Proverbs with life and especially with Scripture? Well, there's a couple of ways that this typically gets worked out. Is uh, One, appealing to the absurdity of life. The same wise man who writes Proverbs later writes Ecclesiastes, wherein he laments that all is hebel. Uh, and that's a word which means vanity or meaningless or a term that I like. It's an enigma. Now, We'll discuss how to read Ecclesiastes next time. But suffice to say that while there's much in life which is enigmatic, perhaps even absurd, the jaded perspective of aged Solomon, I think, goes too far. Nevertheless, there are situations and circumstances which defy rational wisdom and just they don't make sense. And so in that regard, the Proverbs would be best understood perhaps generally. And that bleeds into... The nature of the Proverbs, the second explanation. These Proverbs are moral maxims, uh, wise words, sagacious sayings. And so therefore, by design, they're intended to be general statements or general truths. And so generally speaking, those who are wise uh, and, and fear Yahweh in that way, they will live longer than those who are unwise and don't fear Yahweh. But there are always exceptions. So that's uh, the second major theme I have, which is fear of Yahweh. Did you want to toss anything in here, Alex? Nope. Those are all good thoughts. You can keep going. <laughs> Last one I have is friendship. <laughs> friendship is another key theme in Proverbs. Proverbs has a lot to say about maintaining interpersonal relationships. Uh, with re- and those relationships range from colleagues all the way to intimate lovers. And since there are varying degrees of friendship, it's, it's difficult to be rigid here, but there are essentially two kinds of friends which are recognized in Proverbs. There are fair-weather friends that are here today, gone tomorrow friends. They're around when things are going well, and then they vanish when circumstances change, and usually it pertains to money. When the money runs out, the friends do too. And then there are the ride-or-die friends, the, the thick friends. Uh, Blood is thicker than water friends who are by your side no matter what at the drop of a hat, and they're likened to uh, family and not the uh, Dominic Toretto type family a la – what is those stupid movies? Uh, Fast and the uh, Furious? Fast and Furious franchise. (laughs) but rather, how about this? Proverbs 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You have the parallelism there uh, in the, the poetic structure here, which is how they did poetry back then. And so a friend even likened to a brother, paralleled with a brother. Uh, that's, uh, that's the kind of relationship that you need to cultivate uh, and, and hold on to. Now, characteristic of the friendship-relationship, is that one makes friends by choice. You may not be able to pick your family, and those relationships can sometimes be uh, strained to ineffectiveness, but a well-cultivated friendship can result in a friend's availability when disaster strikes. Uh, For example, uh, you see this in Proverbs 27 and verse 10. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, And do not go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Also, in addition to this, real friends seek to give rather than take. So people often swarm the wealthy while ignoring the poor. But wisdom says that a person who ignores his poor neighbor, uh, which is the same Hebrew root for friend there in 27, Verse 10, the person who does that is a a sinner. And so the blessing is in blessing your poor neighbor rather than in taking from them. Uh, So that's a bit about friendship uh, as it is characterized in the book of Proverbs. Uh, so those were my th- themes that I saw, the, the, some of the major contours of the book, and that's really what we're after here in this particular episode, is the, the main contours of the book and the thinking of Solomon at this uh, point in his life. Uh, and so I'll hand it off to you, Alex. Uh, what uh, what themes stood out to you?
1: Yeah, so uh, Fast and the Furious, Dominic Toretto, played by Vin Diesel, the line is, I don't have friends, I have family. Family. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just to clear things up. Okay, Dom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the major theme that stands out, I think, through the whole book of Proverbs, through all of the arrangements, is the theme of wisdom and folly. So, undergirding the pragmatic advice of Proverbs chapter 10 through 31 is first the story of Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly in chapters 1 through 9. Understanding the religious implications of these two figures serves to underscore all of the proverbial sayings with religious importance. In other words, to have wisdom or to avoid folly isn't merely an exercise in practical living. It's a pursuit of relationship with Yahweh God, a running towards him in reverential fear while running away from the forces of darkness who seek to ensnare you. Uh, in the dictionary of the Old Testament, there's an entry by a guy named Longman Third, right? Mr. Longman Third, And he says, quote, The main key to interpreting the symbolic value of woman wisdom, lady wisdom, is the location of her house on the highest point of the city. In the ancient Near Eastern cities, the temple, representative of the presence of deity on earth, was the building on the highest point. Thus, it is clear that woman wisdom is a personification of Yahweh's wisdom and ultimately of Yahweh himself. On the other hand though, woman folly, lady folly, her location is also on the heights of the city. This also indicates the divine status of this figure. Woman folly represents the false gods and goddesses that seek to lure the Israelite away from the true God. Thus, the choice between woman wisdom and woman folly is no less than a fundamental religious choice between the true God and false gods. The quote continues later and says, The point is that the very ideas of wisdom and folly are religious concepts. That's the point. Though the terms, quote, wisdom and, quote, folly are not used in every verse in the second part, every verse does use associated vocabulary or Simply positive or negative language to indicate whether a behavior is wise or foolish. Thus, the whole book is theological to its core. And I thought that, and that's end quote. And so I thought that was a great point brought up by uh, Mr. Longman the third there, that all of these proverbs, they're not just uh, practical. Pragmatic, they're not necessarily the bag of virtues that you want to pick up. I mean, yes, it is all of that, but underneath all of that is first the understanding that it's religious, that it's a running away from folly, which is the forces of darkness, the gods and goddesses, the false religions, toward that which is true wisdom, the wisdom which comes from heaven, which is Yahweh Himself, His presence, running towards that with that reverential fear. And that's got to be incorporated into our idea of the fear of Yahweh. See, we run away from things that we're afraid of, but it's not that kind of fear that we're talking about. We're talking about running towards that father who is the one able to protect and to guard and to uh, keep you from the dangers of the outside world. So that is, I think, important to see, important to see. So, any other final thoughts from you Nick?
0: Yeah, you know, it's for me it's kind of like, you know, we we graduated uh, when I graduated from high school, you know, there there were there were the kids that were they they got good grades. They were friendly, they were popular, maybe athletic. Um and and you lose touch. That's kind of how how it goes. Life happens and all that. And then maybe years later, you're you're in conversation with someone, and and they're you're asking, well, what what happened to this person? Where where'd they end up? And oh, you didn't know, you didn't hear, and and then they lament about how this this kid they grew up and they just drove the bus off the morality cliff, and and that's for me illustrative of the life of Solomon and my read of, of these first two books that we've looked at. Song of Solomon, that's the doting husband. Uh, here in Proverbs, it's the dutiful father. But he's about to... My read, again, is he's about to take a dive off the moral high dive and there's no water in the pool. And uh, a, a life that started with so much promise, so much religious fervor. He was... I mean, his name, Jedediah, loved by Yahweh, and he he knew God and he loved God. There's relationship there, as you read the narrative of his life in uh, First Kings, especially. And uh, Yahweh, he had uh, Yahweh appeared to him more, multiple times during his life. Uh, Yahweh answered his prayers. He Solomon had built the temple for Yahweh. He had seen the glory of Yahweh fill the temple. He could. He knew the law as king. He had to write it down. He had his own hand copied uh, uh, edition of it. And again, he, his marriage, I think, starts off in a, in a good way. I think he starts off as a father with all the promise uh, that that uh, that one could have for his son or sons. And then he just he he, he takes a sharp turn and he ends up in just moral depravity, gross moral depravity, where he's breaking and violating the law of God, going after the forbidden women, which, by the way, in Proverbs, he has a whole section about that for his sons in in chapter 5. And then he himself turns around later in life, I think, and he's, he's violating his own wisdom. His heart is turned away from Yahweh. He instead of drinking water from his own cistern as he as he advises in in uh, Proverbs 5 he's got a, a thousand cisterns 700 wives 300 concubines he's he's worshipping other gods he's he's engaging in abominable practices as he's worshipping these foreign gods in the way that they prescribe which would have included child sacrifice and he raises up the wrath of god against him so much so that god says i'm going to tear the kingdom away from solomon not during his life but uh, in the life of his son, and it's just like, what? What? And and I think I think we we know people, right? Alex, you and I, we know people that uh, they started off in a good way with the Lord, but now we look at their lives, and and it's just it's a it's a it's a moral mess. And it, it could be members, it could be elders, it could be deacons, it could be ministers, and there's a shift which has taken place that they are no longer walking with God. And, and Solomon, I, I'm persuaded his life is uh, a, a glaring lesson for us that, that we, we need to take heed lest we fall. All those warnings, uh, warning passages that we read in Scripture, uh, that, that is certainly applicable to us. We, we may have a, a, a complex that says, oh, never happened to me. But I, I bet that's what Solomon said. He saw the, he knew about his daddy's sin, right? He was the product uh, after the fact. But uh, and 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 you read what he wrote, what Solomon writes, and I, I think initially there was that burden. But by the time you get to the end of his life, and I think Ecclesiastes, which is the next book we'll cover, you get to that book and you see just how uh, how his soul has been crushed. Uh, under the, the the burden of uh, his, his own moral turn, uh, his turn away from God. Yeah, take take heed, lest you fall. And it it it, it needs to be uh, a lesson for us. And by the way, never happened to me. Also, usually goes along with, well, yeah, but I'm gonna make sure it never happens to me because you know I, I'm gonna I'm gonna read my Bible. Well, Solomon had his own hand copied portion of scripture, so. Well, I'm gonna pray. We got whole prayers of Solomon recorded for us when he dedicates the temple. I'm gonna to go to church. Solomon built a temple. I'm gonna cultivate my relationship with God. Yeah, Solomon did all this. And, and here's the thing: people don't plan for it to happen, but it does. And and I'm not I'm not downgrading any of those spiritual disciplines, do all of them. But we need to be mindful of uh, that the devil is real; he really does uh, roam a, roam about like a roaring lion, seeking to devour someone. And he sunk his claws deep and his teeth deep into Solomon, and it is it's a tragedy. It is it is a tragic story. A, again, a a a life that has had so much promise, so much religious zeal, and it's just it's just uh, a tragedy at the end of it. Um, uh, Thomas Watson is. Um, I believe it was a, was he a Puritan divine? I forget now. But he he was, most people recognize the name Charles Spurgeon. Well, Watson was influential on Spurgeon. And I like this quote uh, from Watson. He said, Sin is an irrational thing that makes man act wickedly and foolishly. It is absurd and irrational to prefer the less before the greater. The pleasures of life before the rivers of pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. Is it not? irrational to lose heaven for the satisfying and indulging of lust to gratify an enemy in sin. We do. And again, we're going to, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes next time. And that is where Solomon, my read is he's an old man. He's very jaded. He's driven the bus off the cliff. And now he is just, it's all meaningless, meaningless vanity, vanity, uh, hevel, hevel. And, uh, Again, just just very jaded in his view, but it's a lesson we need to mark down and learn well, brothers and sisters, all those who are hearing my voice, uh, that uh, we need to be mindful of our own walk, our own lives before the Lord and recognize that uh, it is only because he has been gracious that we are his children and it is only by his continued grace and mercy in our life that we will persist in uh uh, following after him and uh don't lose sight of that. I think Solomon did. So so those were my extra thoughts. A little sermonette there at the end, I guess. Uh what what about you, Alex? What what are your kind of final thoughts on uh Proverbs and, and maybe Solomon generally?
1: Yeah. So you know the thing that sets Solomon apart from other uh biblical figures who fail epically in one way or another is that Solomon never has a passage that talks about him uh, repenting with ashes and sackcloth. It never has a passage about him uh, soaking his couch with his tears because of his sin. Uh, It never has a passage about him being cut to the heart and stricken in his heart and his conscience about what he's done. You get Ecclesiastes where he's, yeah, he's jaded and he's bitter, but he doesn't really show repentance in there. He shows regret, but regret is not the same thing, is it? And he, you know, is the classic example for his sons to do as I say in Proverbs, uh, but not as I do in real life. And so it's no wonder that Rehoboam winds up as this confused, immature uh, boy rising up to replace uh the the big shoes of Solomon who made sure that he was remembered as uh, the wisest man ever the greatest builder ever the richest man ever the biggest peacemaker ever the man with the most wives ever and so it's no wonder that this boy who takes his place is confused, broken foolish and uh, can't even take The advice of the good sages left as his advisors by his father. So at least Rehoboam has an excuse, right? What's Solomon's excuse? Yeah, he had everything. He built the temple. Who set it up for him? David. David accumulated everything he needed for it. Uh, Yeah, he had all the wisdom of the Psalms at his disposal written by his father, David. And he had David, yes, Set an example of moral failure, but he also had David set the example of how to come back from that moral uh, uh, failure with repentance, with ashes, with sackcloth, with Psalm 51. Does Solomon have a Psalm 51 moment? Not that we know of. Does Solomon tear down the pagan temples and the high places to Kamosh and Baal and Molech that he had built for his wives, his foreign wives? Apparently not, not in the text. And so this is uh you know not just a disappointment but there is some serious condemnation I think that is legitimately leveled uh towards Solomon's way. So yeah, Solomon is probably my least favorite character in all of scripture. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so bad, so bad. And uh yeah, and you know, it's interesting what he'll be remembered for later when people write about him in Second Temple literature and pseudepigraphic literature, apocryphal literature, is uh, really he'll be remembered most for his dealings in magic. So isn't that great? What, kind of, what a great legacy that he left behind. And you talk about all these great building projects that he did. He wasted two generations of labor and taxes to do these great building projects and what's he say at the end of his life he says ah wasn't worth it vanity well how do you think that makes the generations who just broke their backs for 50 years uh with his taxes and labor well it made them feel pretty bad they wanted a break and that's what they asked Rehoboam for was a break and Rehoboam couldn't do it because he was foolish because he had a foolish father so that's my thoughts on uh Solomon I'll save the rest of my railings for for later but uh <laughs> that's my final thoughts but yeah but proverbs in and of itself um you know it's got a lot of good stuff in there and you know, we're just going to have to look past the man who Solomon became and see the divinely gifted Solomon earned this wisdom it was gifted to him this divinely gifted wisdom that was left for us in these compressed packages. And uh, the cool thing about Proverbs is that, you know, normally when we're reading through scripture, we're not big fans of lifting it up out of its context and applying it to something that it was not originally applied to. That is uh, a kind of a sketchy handling of the text. We, we try to avoid that, generally speaking. But Proverbs actually encourages you to do that because you don't have the original context of proverbs, right? Not really. You have somewhat, you can gather. But it kind of makes the proverbs, since there's still these compressed packages, it kind of makes them more fluid. It makes them more flexible and available to be applied to a modern context, right? So we uh, we can uncompress them in ways that fit the need an application of today a bit more easier because we're not bound by whatever it meant in its original context you have these nice little packages that are just asking you to lift them up out of the book and apply them to a modern context and that's kind of a cool thing where you get to sort of legitimately handle the text in a way you don't normally get to handle it so that's that's the cool thing i like about proverbs and i also like the idea that these are basically memes and so (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: Uh... Yeah, now we have modern de- – yeah, in modern context, we have dank proverbs.
1: That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, those are my thoughts, Nick. Any other concluding remarks you want to tell the audience how to help the podcast?
0: If you would, uh, leave – if you listen in uh, Apple podcast, leave a review, five stars to so the appropriate number of stars there, and uh, leave a written review. That will help boost the uh, – uh, the podcast in Apple podcast for us. Uh, but you can find us also in Spotify, audible, uh, and, uh, the other major, uh, Google, Google play music. There it is, uh, as well. Share it on social media. If you are so inclined, uh, as well, that, that would help get the word out for it. If you have a question, that you would like for us to answer on an episode of the podcast, you can send that question in to the Swordplay text line. 316-24-SWORD. That's 316-247-9673. You can text your question in there, or you can also email your question to uh, the email address, Alex.
1: Yeah, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We do read your questions, and we save them. So we'll accumulate all your questions, put them into an episode so that everyone can enjoy the answer. Uh, So we do get them. We do read them. We appreciate them. Keep sending the questions in. Help us get another Q&A episode out. But we do appreciate your time. We do appreciate you being a diligent listener, and we appreciate you tuning in to another episode of Swordplay, your double-edged perspective on scripture.